0: Sola means of the Reformation. And what are they? Uh, the sola gratia is saved by grace alone, uh, which is going to be the subject of today. Secondly, Sola fide, which is saved by faith alone. Thirdly, Sola Christus, which is in Christ alone. Then, fourthly, Sola scriptura, according to scripture alone. And number five, sola de gloria, for the glory of God alone. Now, if you noticed in the operative word, is alone. Now, why? Why? Because the rules followed by the Roman Catholic Church to measure truth is Scripture plus tradition plus the magisterium. Excluded from start to finish is the principle of sola scriptura, or scripture alone. So then how the Roman Catholic Church arrives at salvation of a sinner is radically different than the biblical view of salvation of a sinner. Now you may have not known this, but the Roman Catholic Church does believe and teach that salvation is by grace through faith, because of Christ. However, what the Roman Catholic Church does not believe or teach in regards to the salvation of a sinner is that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. So then the Roman Catholic formula for salvation is by grace plus merit, through faith plus works, and by Christ plus the sinner's contribution of inherent righteousness that comes by keeping the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. That's what equals justification. So these solas are very important for us to get our minds around, even in our day. A Roman Catholic theologian named Thomas Aquinas, in his work Summa Theologica, taught that grace is a quality of the soul. He thought the whole idea of grace being moral justice is located inside a person rather than a holy God imputing Christ's righteousness to each person. Aquinas' teaching is really a blatant contradiction to the biblical to biblical truth and is really a negation of the consistent biblical teaching of positional legal righteousness in Christ alone when somebody repents of their sins uh, and by faith believes in Jesus to save them alone, apart from anything else. So biblically speaking, it ought to say the righteousness of Christ is credited to the believer by grace alone alone, and by faith alone, and thus a person is justified by Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, as it is stated in Scripture by the Apostle Paul. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So the bottom line is the Roman Catholic Church does not rest satisfied with Christ alone. Her process program, in fact, nullifies the grace of God because it then becomes a system of works. It is no longer a gift. It's something you have to work for to get. So the Roman Catholic Church's rules for the measure of the truth flies squarely in the face of the words spoken directly to the religious leadership of Jesus' day. And, of course, there's the Mark passage of Scripture I want you to turn to, Mark 7, verse 13. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus exposes the damage done by such self-inventing human tradition where... It says in verse 13, thus invalidating, this is Mark chapter 7, verse 13, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Of course, the Greek word for invalidating is a word that can be translated without authority. In other words, Jesus is saying to those religious leaders... You have abolished the authority of God. And, of course, in the context of the passage, is not only the fifth commandment, but the very word of God. Thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition. And he says you do similar things that rob the word of God of its authority. It's still going on today. See, Jesus shows here that rigid adherence to the traditional laws of men can actually mean disobedience to the very word of God. And remember, true religion can never be a product of man's mind or the conclusion of men's arguments. True religion should not be mistaken for mere outward observance and religious acts. See, the real deception in tradition or the word of God plus something, Christ plus something, faith plus something, the real danger and deception is making the man-made rules and tradition appear to be the teaching of the very word of God, and it's not. The reformers... And, of course, in Sunday school, Dave Kaposha has been going over those reformers, right, letting us know what they taught, what they went through, the battles that they uh, had to wrestle with. The reformers called the church back to the one true biblical gospel of salvation. That's what they did. So this was the question proposed by Martin Luther in his writing on the bondage of the will. His question is simply this. What is the source or the status of faith? Is faith God-given? Is it a gift? Or must we provide or contribute something to make faith real? Of course, if we do that, if we contribute to faith then we really make faith a work. And of course, uh, Arminians believe that, that faith is something we contribute to the message of salvation, and therefore, we become believers. So, is faith part of God's gift of salvation or man's contribution to salvation? That became the real controversy with Martin Luther. Is our salvation holy of God? Or does it ultimately depend on something we do ourselves? This is always the question. How does a person get right with God? Most religions, they tell you you have to do this, 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 and this, and then maybe, maybe you'll be right with God. You won't know until you die, but you don't don't ever know for sure. But yet the Bible says, these things I've written unto you, that you may know you have eternal life. So those who say the latter, of course, man's contribution to salvation, thereby deny man's utter helplessness in sin and affirm that a form of semi-Pelagianism uh, Pelagianism is true after all. Now you say, what's that? Well, Pelagius was a British monk about the end of the fourth century who argued that the sin of Adam only affected Adam and there was no transfer of a sin nature to his offspring. He believed that moral ability to achieve Actually, perfection remains within man even after the fall. In other words, at the fall of man, man was only wounded. In the 15th and 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church even condemned that theology as heretical. Um, Another Catholic priest came along named St. Augustine, And on the other hand, he said, he argued that the fall was so disabling that man was placed in a condition of spiritual death and moral inability to do things that please God. Man was created, he says, with a mandate to be holy, righteous, and perfect. However, the fall so corrupted man's nature that it is impossible for him to do any good or choose God apart from the gracious intervention of God. Oh, yes, some people demonstrate civic righteousness and outward righteousness to do good, but no one has the natural inclination for the things of God. In other words, Augustine concluded At the fall of man, man was dead spiritually. Biologically alive, but dead spiritually. Right? Could he make choices? Yes. His will was still intact, but his will was in bondage to sin. So therefore could not make choices on the level of the spiritual uh, to... Choose God or even reject God because they were dead. So, see, what position would we hold as a church? All right? St. Augustine's emphasis on salvation by grace alone developed out of his conflict with the heretic Pelagius. This teaching has reared its ugly head throughout the centuries right up until this present day. Pelagianism resurfaced in the 16th century in Socianism or the Socian movement. In the 19th century, the movements of liberalism and Finneyism also brought back this particular teaching. Now, Charles Finney was a Presbyterian lawyer probably at the end of the 19th century. and Finney began conducting revivals in upstate New York and followed Pelagius Pelagius by a denial of the doctrine of original sin. Finney believed that human beings are capable of choosing whether they will be corrupt or redeemed. He referred to original sin as an anti-scriptural, nonsensical dogma. Finney denied the notion that human beings possess a sinful nature. So, the reason I decided to give a series of sermons on these five solas is because Pelagianism is still practiced in the church today. In fact, it is a practical working of theology in our very day even though it has remained officially condemned as a heresy, this heresy rested on a denial of original sin and the emphasis on the auto- autonomy and uh, of, of the free will of man to choose to either obey God or disobey God. Now, before I go any further, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you this morning. For the word of God because the word of God clears things up it puts us on the right track it, it transforms our mind it, it pushes aside and exposes wrong teaching especially the teaching that arises out of the heart of man that is energized and really propagated by Satan himself that confuses people and causes them to remain in spiritual blindness. Lord, help us today and in all of these sermons to get a grasp on the greatness of what you have done in providing to us salvation as a gift. That you've done everything for us, but Lord, we are uh, at the point you bring us to believe. So I pray, Lord that you would just clarify and clear our mind up about what it means to be saved by grace alone. Original sin is really the doctrine which holds human the, that human nature has been morally and ethically corrupted due to the disobedience of mankind's first parents. In the Bible, the first human transgression of God's command is described as the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, resulting in what theology calls the fall of mankind. So the doctrine of original sin holds that every person born into the world is tainted by the fall such that all humanity is ethnically really debilitated. That And people are powerless to rehabilitate, to rescue, or to save themselves unless they're rescued by God. Now, there's three common theologies that are still in play today. The first one is, of course, I mentioned already Pelagianism, but the followers of Pelagius who was, of course, a, as I said, uh, was born in the west of England, and he was a British monk, Uh, he believed in human ability. He taught that man is qualified for right and wrong action through a self-complete, independent, inherent capacity to choose God's way or any other way. So at the fall, Pelagius... Uh, on the consequences of Adam's sin, he denied that there is such a thing as original sin. He denied that man inherited Adam's guilt and, of course, refused to allow that there were any ill effects as a result of Adam's sin. Again, as I said, he believed that at the fall we were just wounded. We still had the capability, the uh, ability to respond to God. So the bottom line is if we evaluate it, He, in salvation, you don't need any help from God. Uh, That, of course, is unbiblical, it's humanistic, and it's unchristian. And, of course, they came up with a middle ground position called semi-Pelagianism, and this is an Arminian view, and it is the major view held in the evangelical church today. That man, it says man cannot be saved apart from the grace of God, but There is something man must do even in his still fallen state to cooperate with the grace of God if God will save him or reject God's grace. So yes, man is a fallen sinner under the wrath of God but did not lose everything in the fall. He still has the natural ability to respond to the grace of God and come to Christ. Now, I don't hold that position. I don't hold that position because I don't believe it's a biblical position. I believe in this third position, which, of course, started back uh, with Luther and Augustine and Calvin uh, because they were realizing what was being taught. And, of course, Augustinianism is considered to be the grace-oriented theology that man must depend fully on God for salvation and is totally dependent on the grace of God, even in the person's initial response to the gospel. So the question, can a man respond to the gospel in his fallen state? Pelagius would say, say, yes, absolutely, don't really need any help. It's all inside of us. Semi-Pelagianism would say yes, but man needs help. And again, the semi-Pelagian view is the prominent view in the evangelical movement today. Of course, Augustine would say, answer that question: Can a man respond to the gospel in his fallen state? Absolutely no. He cannot. Why? He's dead. That's the position that I hold and our church holds, and the reason why is because that's what the Bible teaches. All right, so let's take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians. Ephesians, and you will see the only thing that sheds light on this controversy and corrects it is Scripture alone. So let's go to the passage in Ephesians and see how incapable you and i were to save ourselves now some have called the letter to the ephesians the epistle of god's grace i agree with that i do agree with that ephesians of course chapter 2 gives us that passage of scripture that really it really puts a punch right between our eyes And it says in verse number seven, Ephesians two, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then verse eight, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift. Of God, just that verse alone refutes Pelagianism, semi Pelagianism, and the thought that man has anything at all to do in and of their fallen state to respond to the gospel. So, here in these passages, two terms are connected, giving us a fuller understanding of, of what God has done. The first one, of course, is the word grace. Grace, meaning God's gracious care to us, God's unmerited favor toward us. But also, along with grace, he says at the end of verse number eight, it is the gift of God. So, the gift really and grace go together. Gift is really an expression of divine grace. That's, that's how we understand it. What's God's grace? God's giving us something as a gift. Right, And a gift is something you take without paying anything for it. You don't work for it. If you try to work for a gift, you cancel out the whole purpose of a gift. You take it. So God's giving to us a gift. Now, justice means people will get quite accurately what they deserve from God. And what do we deserve from God? Justice and wrath. All right? That's what we really deserve. Mercy means that God will not give you what you do deserve. And what do we do deserve? Justice and wrath. Grace means God giving you what you do not deserve. And what don't you deserve? You do not deserve his love, his mercy, his salvation, his gift. You do not deserve that. I do not deserve that. No one deserves that. I do not deserve his forgiveness based alone on Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. So a gift is something that cannot be earned, that which no man can claim as his right, that which cannot be bought, that which cannot be worked for, It is solely the result of God's goodness and God's grace. Grace, again, is unmerited favor. Kindness shown to someone who does not deserve any kindness at all. It is the free gift of God to people who are utterly undeserving of it. So then grace is that which God does for mankind through his Son, which mankind, again, cannot earn, does not deserve, and cannot merit. Paul thought of preaching the gospel of grace to such an extent, he says, it was more important than his own life, where he says, I do not consider my life uh, on any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So the the center point and why I start with grace is because the center point of the gospel, it is that it is the gift of God being offered to fallen sinful humanity who cannot do anything at all, whatsoever, to deserve it. They are incapable. We are all incapable to deserve it. So when we are overwhelmed with God's undeserved grace and goodness, it humbles us and it makes us immensely grateful to God for forgiving us so much. A humble person understands the sinfulness of their own heart. They see themselves as no better than anyone else. They understand that he, in and of himself, is really incapable or capable of the worst of sin. He agrees that with John Bradford, who said, but for the grace of God, there go I. See, when a Christian understands the grace of God, really everything changes. So... In Ephesians chapter 2, you see that the word of God is showing us as to the characteristics which permeated our lives when we were outside of Christ. That is before God began to act upon us with resurrection power, before the Father started drawing us to himself. In other words, what we once were pre conversion. This is who we were. This is who who all of us were. We could have no wondrous relationship to Christ unless we were raised to our new position by God's salvation by grace in Christ. So you see, we must often remind ourselves of what we once were and what God has now made us to be. This is what we were. In other words, what we were is a person who could not respond to God at all. Now, let's look at verse number 1 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. There are five things that really bring to light the whole point of grace alone. And it's this, the first one is, without Christ, we once walked around in a condition of deadness. Look at verse number 1. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Now, uh, brethren, uh, biologically alive, but spiritually dead. See, there's no better word to be used than dead. Dead to describe man in his fallen and depraved condition. Now, just as a person physically dead does not respond to physical stimuli, so a person spiritually dead is unable to respond to spiritual things. A corpse does not hear the conversation going on in the funeral parlor. He has no appetite for food or drink. He feels no pain. He is dead. Just so, with the inner man of the unsaved person, his spiritual faculties are not functioning. They cannot function until God gives him life. So, ultimately, dead means to be ignorant of God. It's not to know God. Even in John, uh, verse Chapter 17, it says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, not to know God is death, and life, that is non-Christian, is really a living death. Two words are used to show our deadness in this passage of Scripture— It says we're dead in trespasses and sin. See, the repetition of these two words is for the purpose of being more emphatic about the condition of our deadness. Paul speaks of sin as a power that holds humanity under its sway and leads them to death. These words also confirm the sinful nature of humanity as the book of Romans confirms it. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And of course, there is this word trespass. It's a word that means to slip and fall. Actually, if you remember, if you're aware of the great message preached by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the hands of an angry God. He kind of springboarded off this thought of man in a fallen condition. All he can do when it comes to spiritual things is slip and fall. And he uses Deuteronomy 32 as his passage where it says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening Upon them. See, you can't, in other words, walk around this world as a sinner, dead, without slipping and falling. Matter of fact, you and I kept slipping and falling from what is true, what is right, what pleases God our whole life. Why? Because we could not respond to God. And of course, he uses another word, and it's the word sin. Sin is a word that really literally means to miss. A man shoots an arrow at a target, and the arrow misses. That—that That is the word here, harmatia. It means sin is a failure to hit the target of God's righteous standard. We commonly have a wrong idea of sin. We would readily agree that a robber a murderer a gangster, an adulterer, a drugger, a drunkard, to name a few, are sinners. We would all agree that. But since most of us are respectable citizens, in our heart of hearts, we think that sin has not very much done anything to us. We have respectable sins, as some theologians have called it. But harm the word here, brings us face to face with what sin is. It's a failure to be what we ought and could be before God. See, our God is holy and perfect, and he requires us to be holy and perfect, to be in his presence. We cannot come into the presence of a holy and a perfect God without we ourselves being holy and perfect. But we cannot do that on our own. He cannot allow transgression and sin into his presence. All human beings fall short. They slip and fall. They miss the target of reaching the standard that God has set before us, and that standard is perfection. So when a human sins... They are missing the mark of God's righteous standard. And at the same time, of course, they are hitting something else. They are namely hitting unrighteousness. That is why the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, use words that give us the idea of rebelling against God, of wickedness, of selfishness, of disobedience, of lawlessness, all referring to the sin of man. There's so many, uh, we sin such depth, uh, the word of God gives us many words to name it. So sin is a, really a violation of a set standard and a violation against the one who set the standard. And you and I come drastically short of that standard every time, all the time. It is not that all human beings are as bad as they could be but that all humans have the potential for the worst of sins. And consequently, your sin and my sin dominated our life, put ourselves up against God and under his judgment. So in our sinful deadness, we would have never responded to God's gospel call. We needed God's grace to save us. That's the first thing. The second thing in our passage, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, is this, that without Christ, pre-conversion, we once conducted our, your, our lives in harmony with the way the present age lives. In other words, the world around us. Look at what it says in verse 2, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world. So the term world carries with it at least two things. Number one, man in rebellion against God, especially men in hostility to God, and then secondly, a way of life, especially as opposed to the purposes of God. The world system, the course of this world, it is the order or system of this earth As it now exists, since sin and death have invaded it and mankind is in a depraved state, it involves the world's values and the world's pleasures and pastimes and aspirations. And just by way, a reminder that I'm not talking about the physical world in which God made and we are to care for and enjoy. I'm talking about the current thoughts in any day in which we live, the philosophies, the ideologies that connect how the world system thinks, and then the world system presses what they think upon you to the point where our universities are saturated with teachers who have a world view of of the world and the world systems, but not God's point of view. And then we have people that are really permeating all aspects of society and giving. The news, for example, our news media, they're permeated with a worldview that is completely in the opposite direction of what God intends for us to know. And the reason why is because this world system has been, in every generation, not just ours, opposed to God and his truth, whether it's fashion, clothing, hairstyles, languages, the way we spend money. How we spend our time, what we should desire, what we should eat, how we should worship, how we should think, it's all out there, and it's being pressed upon us. Matter of fact, Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't let the world press you into its mold. And believe me, that's what it does. Because everywhere you go, you're getting bombarded by the thinking, the thinking of the world. But it, it's not God's point of view on things. It will never lead you at all whatsoever to doing anything right before God. It will always lead in the opposite direction. So you know what that means. You and I were making our moral and ethical and social decisions based on what is acceptable in society. right? Doesn't anybody, everybody want to be accepted? Everybody wants to be accepted. That's the pressure when a young person goes off to school and leaves home. They want acceptance. But sometimes their acceptance comes uh, by someone who doesn't have God's point of view, has a world's point of view. And so we stop asking questions like, what does God say? What does God want me to do? So you and I were going along with the flow and the change with very little, if any, discernment or critical thinking about what is really going on around us. I believe Christians should know what's going on around them in every realm. From the church to the political realm to the social realm, they need to know and be aware of everything. That's why we're always learning and growing. So all these world, all these views, the world system, in in really in a a self-sufficient independence of God and a willing opposition to God, coupled also with a disregard of the judgments of God and the standards of God and the very existence of God, God doesn't exist anymore. If God doesn't exist, do whatever you want. So if if in the teaching of the world God doesn't exist, young people are not guilty of sin. They haven't committed sin. There's no standard, all right? This is what everybody does. It's acceptable behavior in every, every place you go. So there's, there's no conviction in the sense of a worldly standard of any kind of sin because there is no sin. You must bring God and the word of God into the picture to have any relationship or thought in your mind that you actually have sinned against God in anything you do. So in our sinful and fallen state of mind, we were not free. We were in bondage to the world's ideology and direction and outside. And this, of course, outside influence led us by the nose, deceiving us that we were free to make our choices. However, in that condition, we would have never responded to God in the gospel's call, we could not. We need God's grace to save us. Here's the third thing in verse number two of Ephesians chapter two. Without Christ, we once walked under the authority or authoritative lure of Satan. The word it says, it says, according to the prince and power of the air, of the spirit that now is working in the son's Of disobedience. So, us pre conversion in a fallen state, you and I being led by the system of the world, being in bondage to our own transgressions and sins, and now the Bible is telling us, and you were under the power of the God of this world which is Satan and his minions. And his power is not earthly, no. It says it belongs to another realm, a heavenly place. The term power of the air may mean either powers that dwell in the air or powers of darkness. I believe what they mean is powers of darkness. Because it says in Ephesians six twelve, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against Rulers against the powers against the world forces of darkness against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So Satan does not have human power. He has angelic power. And that's way more powerful than any human being. And he had power over you, over me in a pre-conversion state how do you rescue yourself from that see the devil is the spirit now working in unbelievers when i was an unbeliever i thought everything was all right i was doing fine i wasn't looking for god everything was going kind of good in my life traveling the world you know had some a little bit of money enjoying myself and I thought I was free. I wasn't free. I was being led by my nose. I was under the lure of the enemy. Here the the spirit means a principle, that there is a power about it. It's not passive principle. It's an active principle. It's an, an evil at work. The evil principle is governed by the devil. In fact, the devil is so subtle that he dominates man and permeates him at the same time convincing him he's free. In other words, a spiritual force is powerfully at work to blind the minds of people to the truth, to deceive them, as scripture affirms again in 2 Corinthians 4 4, in who Case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the evil one will gain entry into your mind and heart through any means possible, and he has all of them at his disposal. He will seduce with words, with pictures, with music, with entertainment, with relationships. So the spiritual forces beyond our ability to resist influenced behavior in rebellion to God, in rebellion to God's plan. And yet real believers have no need at all to fear him. We should respect him, but in Christ we have no need to fear him because the victory has been won over him by Christ Himself, So that means that in our sinful, dead, fallen state that was governed by the God of this world, the devil, we were unable to see the way of salvation. And in that condition, we would have never responded to the gospel of God's call. We could not. We needed God's grace to save us. And we still do today. And then fourthly, In verse number three, without Christ, we once lived governed by the strong lusts and passions of our own mind and body. In verse number three, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. That's who we are. We crave sinful things. Why? Because we are. Are sinners. We were born sinners. Anything in the world system can become the source of sinful desire, even though it may be good in and of itself. The fleshly body can be the source of sensual desires and lusts for food, for drink, for sexual gratification. But it says in the word of God in 1 John 2, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lusts are the strong, urgent cravings for something usually that is prohibited or forbidden. For example, why does a dog do what a dog does? A dog behaves like a dog because it has a dog's nature. If somebody could transplant into the dog the nature of a cat his behavior would radically change that would be a horrible thing for a dog to become a cat dogs alright, cats eh. that's only my humble view for all you cat lovers please forgive me I always, now, matter of fact I, I did have two or three cats growing up, only because I rescued them. And then I, I ended up taking care of them. I used to like them, but anyway. So, so why, why does a sinner behave like a sinner? Because they have a sinful nature, right? So parents, don't be so upset when your children go south on you and do what they know is completely wrong, and the reason why is because they're sinners. That's why you have to pray a lot. And you have to make sure that you instill in them the word of God and show them the right way from the word of God. And the Bible, notice what it says in our passage. It says in verse number, uh, where is it, three? It says we were indulging the flesh. That's, that's an interesting word there. Matter of fact, the entire person is affected. The mind and the flesh and the thoughts, the deeds, these include every base fired, uh, kindled in the human heart, which really reaches out for an object in order to satisfy itself. See, we are, we are still tempted by the idea that sin will make us happy. We're still tempted by that, even as strong believers. See, it won't make you happy, but it will give you Pleasure. But the pleasure pleasure is short-lived. So the the phase here, lust of the flesh, really, to be born in the flesh means that we have no inclination towards spiritual things. To the things of God, the flesh is spiritually dead. In fact, it rebels against the rules of God and wants to go its own way. So do you see what kind of condition we were in? How in the world would we ever conclude that we had any ability in in and of ourselves to respond to God in our fallenness with all these things against us? See, in our sinful, dead, fallen state, we were enslaved on the inside by our own powerfully sinful lust and passions with no inclination towards spiritual things. To have the things of God, the flesh is spiritually dead. So in that condition, we could have never responded to God in the gospel call. We could not. We needed God's grace. Now, where does that lead to us? It leads us to the last thing and the fifth thing. Look at verse number three. Without Christ... We lived a life which was deserving only of the wrath of God. Look what it says in verse 3, the end of the verse. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the wrath. So you see, our predicament without Christ was that we were objects of God's wrath. God was against us. All those other things, and God was against us. Due to our failure to live up to the standard of God's holiness, we were under God's wrath. And upon our death, we would have been justly condemned to an eternity in hell. I heard that Greg preached a great message last week, and so you all have a concept of hell, right? And you don't want to go there. But you're not going to escape hell by doing good works to equal what Christ did on the cross. You're only going to escape it if you trust in Christ alone. Right? Well, man on the inside has corruption and death. Man on the outside with his fellow human beings they are engaged in combat with each other and with God, his, their creator. They're enemies of God. The entrance of sin into the human race has wrecked havoc with every single thing. So what power is going to rescue a sinner in that predicament? I say this. No power but God's power. Only God... As it says in Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness to transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, after God changes our disposition, the disposition of your heart, then you choose to receive the offer of salvation. It is only then, like it says in Ephesians, God quickens us. He makes us alive to what? To not only see the kingdom of God, but then to enter the kingdom of God. He does that. And he changes our heart to be able to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. And so when we do that, we will be saved by grace alone. Now, you may be saying, well... What's the difference? What difference does it make if I believe or not believe to be saved by grace alone? Or even if you do believe it, what kind of implications does it have? Well, you know, the first implication it has is this. We experience God's unconditional love. There's nothing God asks us to do to be saved. He does it all and and provides all of it for us. Even faith and repentance is a gift of God, not of works. Also, grace is very surprising to us, especially when we understand how God stoops low to reach a longing lost soul. That's why it's called amazing. That's why so many songs talk about amazing grace. It is amazing when you understand salvation and what God did for you. Also, grace releases us from the slavery of sin. If the Son shall make you free, you will be free indeed. It's only Christ who could do that. Also, grace guarantees our security. It's like what Paul Said in Romans chapter 8, when the question comes up if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? But in that passage of scripture, it was Sinclair Ferguson who brought out some very interesting things about our security in Christ. Because of being saved by grace. And the first one, where it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of His son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Mm -hmm. And then it says, What what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And then in verse number 35, verse number 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? See, he's really, uh, what he's doing here is that there's darts being flung at us. And the first dart is this, flung at us usually by Satan himself. God is against you. Is really God for you? Look at your life. You're a mess. That's an attack of Satan. A second dart was Satan really really would bring accusations because of your sin. He says... What defense do you have when I bring up your sin? What defense do you have against that? Also, a third dart that would be flung at us by Satan is, you say you're forgiven? But have you forgotten that there's a payback day? A day of judgment? How will you defend yourself before God? Look at you. Look at the sin in your life. Look at what you've done. See, how do we stand up against those kind of attacks? Satan will come to you on a a fourth attack and say, given your track record, what hope is there for you that God's going to preserve you to the end? Well, what are we to say against these attacks when they will come against us? We have to say the exact same thing that Paul says in this passage of Scripture. But we also have to remember the answer that would come to us when God says to us, do you see how much I love you? Do you see how much grace I have given you? I was prepared to bear my own judgment against you in the person of my own son. If I was prepared to do that, what would I hold back from you? I would hold nothing back from you, and that's why he says that in the passage of Scripture. It says in verse 32 of Romans 8, And he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And then he ends the passage of Scripture like this. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation separate us, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written in Scripture, for your sake we are being put to death all day long, We were considered as sheep to to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we were overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, and this is what you tell Satan, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able To separate me and us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So it's not about the what, it's about the who. And the who is Christ. And Christ has extended to you his grace alone, apart from anything else. And that is the only way someone gets saved. That's the only way. Now, of course, you may be sitting here uh, this morning and, and not know that you're saved. You, have, you may have never come to a place where you have called upon the Lord Jesus Christ and asked him to be merciful to you and to save you, to forgive you of your sins, and then to receive him as your own personal Lord and Savior. Now, God brings us to that point Unless the Father draws us, we can't be saved. But when the Father does draw us, he brings us to the place where God's grace is no longer resistible. It becomes unresistible. And that's when we say, Lord, I'm a sinner, you're a savior, save me. We've all come to that place who are true believers. If you haven't, you're not a true believer. Of course, Many things happen after that point, but come today, talk to someone today if you don't really know if you're a believer. If you do know, then all that you can say is grace is amazing, and I don't deserve it, but I am sure glad God gave it to me. See, that's where we all should be, and it should motivate us in service in all areas of our life to be very thankful about something God gave us that we would never have merited or deserved, that's salvation by grace alone, right? Not merit, not works, not keeping the sacraments, right? But by grace alone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning how the word of God, Lord, clears things up in the controversies of Men and teaching in the church and the things that surround the church. I pray, Lord, this morning that we would become more aware of your grace in our own life. Not only the grace that saves us, but the grace that is extended to us every single day. Because we know, Lord, we experience your grace and mercy every day of our life. So I pray, Lord, if there's that one person who has not come to believe in you yet, I pray you would convict them of their sin, of righteousness and of judgment, and Father, draw them to Christ that they may confess you. Grant them faith and repentance. Give them that gift of grace so they can believe and they can see the kingdom so they can enter the kingdom of God and they can experience the forgiveness of God's grace and know that their sin is washed away by the blood of Christ and the work that was accomplished by Christ on the cross. And I pray that they may come to you. And Lord for us who are believers, help us each day to rest upon the grace that saved us alone. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.